the lack of a decision sometimes is a decision. Mm-hmm. Well, of course it should pop more. Paul and I were actually about to have a disagreement, uh, and then you doubled excellent. back on yourself. So I think we can all agree that that continuous delivery is awesome. You know, you just add another feature, you just add another flag. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harba, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. In this episode, we talk about who owns code, scaling teams, and cowboy coding. Okay, so one of the things we wanted to talk about this week was uh, the the idea of shipping velocity and how it's affected by uh, by team structure and by other sort of um, miscellaneous factors that aren't that aren't part of of continuous delivery. Yeah, I mean, can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by velocity first? Sure. So velocity uh, is this sort of nebulous term that they use a lot in in product management and and that sort of thing to indicate how how quickly. Uh, or the, the the sort of throughput with which uh, engineers and product teams are able to to put through code. Well, one thing that, that that isn't particularly clear, and and there was this amazing uh, blog post by a guy called uh, Phil Calcado, uh, who worked at SoundCloud, and he talked about the idea that even though that they had a very high velocity, they they weren't able to ship features very very quickly. Uh, so often it would take 60 days to ship a feature, even though no one got blocked. And so the idea of shipping quickly, I think, is a, is a combination of of velocity and latency. And it depends on your on your kind of business goals, whether you need to ship quickly or you just need to kind of keep, keep the throughput up. Well, do you think part of the issue with SoundCloud might have been that they were trying to do too large features? I mean, that's that's somebody's first reaction when they hear it takes 60 days. So in the in the blog post, what he said is is first someone would uh, you know spec out something and then they'd put onto the next person's queue and that would be maybe designer who who drew up wireframes and then the wireframes would end up on on an engineer's queue to implement it um, and in between the you know someone doing work and someone else doing work there would be you know sometimes ten or eleven days of just waiting for it to get to the front of that person's backlog. Oh, so it wasn't so much. You know, are you biting off more than you can chew? It's just the process wasn't particularly set up to be able to to ship things very quickly. When he got in there, the first thing he did is he said, "Oh, you're not doing continuous delivery, or you aren't doing continuous deployments." And so he turned on continuous deployment and, and got that set up. And it was a 66 day process before he finished. And when he got continuous deployment set up, it was a 65 day process. Uh, <laughs> so all that work to save a single day. Right. Well, it, it was it was more that the discussion was about how. It wasn't really about, you know, continuous delivery. It wasn't really about, you know, the, the time that people were spending on certain things. It was the vast majority of it was was the time that was spent waiting on it. Yeah, that takes me back a lot to the whole idea of just in time manufacturing and lean. The whole idea of lean was to reduce waste, and one area of waste is time. Like if you have people on a factory line who are waiting for the next part. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, stuff queuing up, then you're being well, so very wasteful. I think this is how people um, I, th- I think that that's the thing that the backlog is is intended to fix. That you're never waiting for things because there's always something in the backlog that needs to get done. But what what isn't considered as part of that is something is sitting in the backlog um, for you know five days, ten days, two weeks, or whatever, waiting for for someone to address it. Then uh, the speed with which you can get a feature out you know increases dramatically or, yeah. or decreases dramatically. I guess. Uh, well, that's the whole idea behind the, the 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 Toyota factory line is that they they 
the just-in-time delivery meant that mm-hmm. uh, there was always a part right then, not before, or not after. Right, okay. So, R- But right when they're ready. But you, you couldn't say, I need a car now, or you... you I, I think it's 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 not really optimized around the idea of how quickly something goes from one end to the other. It's more optimized around how quick or how much, how little wastage you can have in the system itself. Which means, in this case, how much developer engineer um, or designer engineer and PM time is is being spent doing nothing. And I think you can certainly reduce that time to, to very very low without necessarily optimizing the speed at which it takes to assemble a car. Yeah. which is something that you need really to to you know get to market quickly and that, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and it's a trade-off, you know. I I, I went to a talk that the former CTO of Yammer gave Adam Pivsoni, and he talked about how on projects they always had an extra engineer. Mm-hmm. Like if they thought a project would take four engineers, they would actually put five on it. Right, right. For precisely that reason that they never wanted anybody to be sitting around blocked. So that they would rather take the cost of an extra engineer just so there was always somebody to, to do the next task. Right. And so, so there's an interesting uh, thing about uh, how teams are structured in that. The, in, the, in the Yammer example, they, they have teams. And teams you know, do, do a project or do a particular feature, and I presume that they're cross-functional. There's a couple of designers, a couple of engineers, whatever. Uh, and a different way to structure it is, is to have um, teams that, that are aligned on a particular, um, uh, by, by what they do. Or something like that, and you you, you have the the engineers who are sitting at the front of the front end queue, or who who work on the front end uh, rather than work on a particular project which you know has components of front end back end you know, all, all that thing, and you end up with a very different structure. Uh, or it's obviously a very different structure, but you end up with a different um, ability to ship depending on on how you're. Um, Depending on what you're trying to do and what's the most important thing for your organization, and also how your organization is staffed. Yeah. So the the the, the backlog works very well if if you're short staffed in any particular area, and so you spend a lot of time prioritizing so that the people that maybe you're short on design time or something, so that the design time is is spent really really well. But it doesn't necessarily uh, allow you to to turn around a feature from start to finish and get it out to your customers incredibly quickly. Yeah, and, and that's a, a decision that different organizations make. I right. mean, some, some organizations say we'd rather have 100% utilization, mm-hmm. even if it means our features take longer. Right. My, my feeling is that most organizations don't actually make that uh, decision consciously. It's, it's implicit. Right. Oh, nah. so what do you mean by that? Oh, well, so I've worked at a lot of big enterprises, and my saying was always the lack of a decision sometimes is a decision. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not going to hire an extra designer to unblock a lot of people, so therefore our, our features are just always going to be gated by that. So when you say it's implicit, you mean that, um, I guess you kind of mean the same thing as I do, that, that people aren't, aren't really thinking about the, the advantages or the disadvantages of the, of the structure of particular teams. Yeah, the people are just kind of, they say, oh, everybody looks busy, and why does a feature take 65 days? Right, right. right. So one of, the, one of the structures that I really liked, um, the... Uh, it was a talk at Heavybit, and I think it's on the um, uh, it's on the Heavybit website uh, by um, by PVH from Heroku. Oh, he's so great. Yes, yes, uh, and he talked about uh, uh, Peter Peter Van. How, how do you say his last name? Uh, if if I knew, I wouldn't have said PVH. <laughs> I was trying to spell it out for our readers, but it's like Hardenberg, I think. <laughs> um, Let, let's, uh, PVH is great. Yeah. So the in, in in the talk, he talked about the. That at Heroku they have product teams that that are around specific areas, and the product teams have you know, two engineers and a PM and maybe a designer and 
Uh, and and that, that's kind of roughly it. And so teams have like two to five people uh, and they're focused on a particular area. So they do the prioritization within their areas. They do the support and the ops within their, within their specific features. And then they're able to trade off uh, or th they're very, very close to the problem. And they have then PMs who are, you know, working to protect them from other areas or bleeding <laughs> into other areas, but also, uh, you know, working to solve their particular problems. Uh, rather than necessarily one backlog for the entire, you know, maybe the entire platform or, or the entire web or, or something along those lines. So basically little small startups within a bigger company. Little, yes, and I, I think actually that, that's how they structured it at the start. I, I remember uh, them saying that there was a, they would actually have presentations to the board uh, and that each of, the, each of the teams were structured as a, um, the, the, the PM was like a CEO and they actually like gave presentations to the board. And I, I think that didn't necessarily last very long, but I think that was the initial idea behind it. Yeah, we, we, we did something very similar at TripIt. We had a, you know, we would have a new project we wanted to do. You know, we were trying to do TripIt offers mm -hmm. and we had a project team just for that. And that's what they did. And the idea right. was that they could focus. I've also heard of people who do stuff completely different. Okay. Like uh, I talked to a guy who ran an agile shop and every project had to be a week long, mm -hmm. and nobody had any ownership whatsoever. Right. So he said, at, 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 and not even like ownership in the way we would think of it, he said our front-end people were back-end, people were mobile also. Mm -hmm. Like at every week you got a new project, you worked on it for the week, and then you switched. Right. It's, it's kind of like a Pivotal's pairing. Yeah. Um, the, you know, you, you're not, it's not the two of you pairing together on a particular thing. It's like your, your pair changes every day or twice a day, um, and you're constantly rotated through all the different things. It's not necessarily one thing that you work on at any particular uh, length of time. And he said it, it, it stopped people from being possessive about their code. Mm. I think the key thing about this is, is that there's no right answer. And it, it depends a lot on the people, but once you get into a bad situation for your team, I think it's very, very difficult to get out of it because there isn't, I think people don't spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, we've structured it this way to solve these particular problems. And that, that makes it very difficult to, to reason about the problems that we have might be related to the way that the, the, that the organization is structured. Are, are you talking about how people claim agile will cure cancer? Something along those lines, but it, also how you see a lot of uh, reorganizations, especially in big companies. And the reorganizations, I think, are a recognition at a high level that something is wrong with, um, or the, the, the process or the structure is, is a thing that's blocking good people from, from accomplishing good things. Of course, they don't necessarily work out either because the whole thing is, uh, <laughs> uh, there's so many trade-offs, it's impossible to tell in advance how something is going to work. Yeah, I, I've, I've worked at companies that have reorged every three months. It's kind of like uh, the seasons of the year. I had seven bosses in one year once. Wow. So I, I found it interesting when you were talking about the, the, the idea of, you know, you have a, a project team versus a, it's called an owner team or an area of responsibility kind of, kind of team or something like that. I think it's really interesting that the, the difference that happens between when there's long-term ownership and when there's not long-term yeah. ownership. And I'd say the difference is when there's long-term ownership that stuff starts to become very poorly documented. Mm, interesting. Uh, you know, because right, it's... Bus factor goes down. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's if one person owns it, they don't feel any need to document it. Internally, right, because they, they understand it all in their head and they're, right. Yeah, so I heard it, I was talking to a customer and they said, just doing a single build was a, a nightmare because there's only one person who understood how to do the builds. 
how to do a build along. I mean, surely they automated the build, and that that solves that problem. It wasn't automated, and it became this cruft where you know he said every every time they deployed, there was always the hero who fixed everything. Gotcha. But the reason why he was the hero was also was. He calls the problems. Yeah, right. He, he never documented anything. Yeah. So like every time it's like, oh, there's a script, and then you do this, and then and it's all fine. Right, right, right. And, and it goes back to mm. people claim that sometimes that continuous delivery takes more time. Okay, what, what do you mean by that? Um, because you have to be disciplined enough to do continuous integration. You mm-hmm. have to be disciplined enough to put all this framework into place. Right. Okay. So you, instead of fixing something, you write a test first, and then you fix it, or or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's like it's it, you have to have the discipline to clean up your mess as you're cooking, basically. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, obviously, this this affects my business directly. So I'm I'm just going to put a defense in for this, and 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 I think the defense is that, you know, if if you don't clean up um, as you go, then then you you cannot write tests. You can you cannot um, validate that that your code actually works, and and that will get your velocity up for the first month. And then after that, you'll be in a you'll be afraid to touch anything. You'll be afraid to move forward. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, you know, because LaunchDarkly's customers depend on there being continuous integration. Right, right, right. So I'm on board. Um, and it's kind of the evolution of I'd say a cowboy culture where it's like ship everything as quickly as possible, mm-hmm. just get it out, get it out, and then you realize that that's actually very slow. Right, right. And if you take the time to write tests, to, to do good code, to, to do continuous delivery, then all of a sudden it's a very efficient way to do things. So I think we can all agree that, that continuous delivery is awesome, continuous integration is awesome, launch darkly is awesome. Circle CI is pretty cool. Great, great. Um, so I, th- I think looking back at the teams and, and, and how the team structure affects it, it's, it's kind of weird that after all this time in, in, in software, and I, I would say there's, there's been about maybe 50 years of professional software development under the belt now, that, that there isn't an optimal way of doing it. It's really funny you say that. Um, my mother, um, I realize now, has been in software for a long time. Mm-hmm. She, she's an IEEE fellow, and she actually has worked on many standards about software documentation. Okay. Which for a long time was held up as if we just have better ways to document how software software should be written, everything yeah. would be golden. Okay. And I, as the rebel daughter, I've always said like that's <laughs> really, you know that's you know these docs are ridiculous. Right. Like there's there's standards on how you should spec software. I'm like that's not the way people actually build software. Right. And then I shake my fist and I'll listen to rock and roll in front of her. So it's been um, I don't know twenty five thirty years since people have have recognized that waterfall was a was a bad model. I don't know if it's bad. It came out of well, let's talk about waterfall came about because it was better than cowboy. Okay, um, I would argue that it's not necessarily better than cowboy. Oh, and I would argue that that, that waterfall isn't necessarily inherently bad either. It, it it just depends on the situation that you're in and the. Um, well, Paul, oh, yeah. Paul and I were actually about to have a disagreement, uh, and then you doubled excellent. back on yourself. Okay, so so what, in in what situations does cowboy work? For example, I think if you're just one person, maybe. Right, right, exactly. So so if you uh, if you are the product visionary and also the uh, the sole implementer, and also um, you are the customer, and also it's a relatively small scoped project that you can do yourself. I'd say the one drawback, though, is if you want to have any sort of maintainability. Uh, yes and no. So I, I was using this um, this software tool the other day. It's called JQ. Have you come across it? I haven't. So it's a command line tool for um, uh, for modifying jQuery. Oh. Um, 
and and it was it was written by 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 one guy, a guy named uh, named Stephen Dolan, um, and it it basically is a very simple interface that that, that lets you pipe in some JSON, uh, do operations on it, and pipe out some some JSON at, at the end of it. JSON in, JSON out. Right, and the uh, it it's just a tiny thing that does one thing. It's it's incredibly well implemented when you when you look at the code, and it's just a very uh, like it's it's a one man size project, and it's the design of it is just super clear in the way that you often don't get in larger projects. Yeah. Because it's it's all you know one person's vision and one person's direction on it. And I think that if you have that, then Cowboy is is an excellent way to do it, especially especially if you have you know, an incredibly good person who who is that cowboy. I think where where cowboy starts to break down is where you have two or three different cowboys, especially if any of them are bad at communicating. Oh, and you know, I'm sure we've all been part of software projects, or and and you see this especially in open source, where where you know, bad communication is 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 kind of you know the the definition um, of it that, that that you end up with projects going in many different directions and people pressured to take in. Uh, things that don't necessarily follow the vision because there isn't a vision because there's three people going in different directions with it. Well, there's three visions. There's three visions. And and, there's issues and there's a right. vision. It's just that there's not one vision. Right, right. Uh, or, and, and there might be 20 visions. So your conclusion is cowboy is good if you have the right cowboy. When you, um, the, I, I think the right size project is, is also good. And I, I think this is one of the reasons that a microservice is so successful, um, that you can actually build a microservice with one cowboy. Uh, so long as as you have a well defined scope and, and well defined interface to to the outside world, I think you can do that as long as that person is always the person who is maintaining it. Well, I mean, you, you can't have a bus factor of one that that, that has to go away. Yeah. Um, but you can have a uh, an implementation where where one person does the initial implementation, sets down the vision, and uh, and there's a simple uh, set of principles on which the software is built. And that that can be maintainable like that. You don't agree? I, I think. I mean, I say this because I write down everything because I forget it. Like mm-hmm. I look back at something I did a year ago, and I'm like, why did I do that? Right, right. And that's right. why I take notes. Uh, so you're saying that that cowboys won't take notes? Well, they did. If if you're just coding and you're not commenting correctly, if you're not writing up all the tests right, you're just assuming that nothing will ever change. Then you go back a year, a year later. Um. Yeah, that that wasn't really what I meant. I guess it's implied by the name Cowboys. It's someone flying by the seat of their pants. And, <laughs> right, yeah, so, so that wasn't really what I was thinking. I was, I was thinking someone a little more professional, perhaps a little more disciplined than that. But I, I, I take your point, definitely. Yeah, I mean, when I think of a cowboy, I think of somebody who just codes, doesn't comment, doesn't test, just ships. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, if, yeah, if, yeah. If, you're saying, if you're saying, can a single person write good code? Yeah, of course, that's not really a discussion. I think what I'm saying is is that you can succeed in a sort of a... A more fly-by-the-seat nature versus a more structured waterfall-like or, or even kind of you know agile scrum sort sort of thing, under the right situations. But you still have. So I, I think we we agree. We were just right. Perhaps we were separated by a common language. So so going up, um, going up one level. What's uh, after the the sort of cowboy level? I I, I said that um, that waterfall can work. Yep. So. What are some places where you think it can work well? Well, so if you know exactly what it is you're going to build, and the the the, the reason that Agile came out, and or the the you know when you look at the Agile manifesto, one of the major things is you know, deliver it to customers quickly and iterate on that. If iteration isn't isn't a thing that you necessarily need, um, so such as something that that has you know a very well defined spec, 
And you know, I, I can think of a couple of examples here. If you're building something for a mobile phone network, everything within within the back end of a mobile phone network has you know excruciating specs and acceptance tests of what goes in and what goes out. And if you wanted to write a new one, well, I mean, you you've got all the acceptance tests before you go in. You you you, you don't need you don't necessarily need to ship that to a customer and say, what do you think about it? Because the the answer, what do you think about it, is you know, does it pass this? this yeah, does automated does, does test? my phone turn on? Right. Uh, so I, th- I think that, that that's kind of one example. The the place where where it breaks down, and and I think the place where where agile really excels is where there's uh, where there's a customer, and where as you say, like you know, people are separated by a common language, where specs are difficult to write, uh, where it's difficult to understand what people actually mean by them, and where you don't actually know if the thing that you're building it might be what the person asked for, but might not be what they wanted. Yeah, so I love Agile. I've seen it misapplied so many times, and I've seen Agile used as an excuse to basically go back to cowboy. We don't know what we're building, so we won't dwell just like, you know. Right, okay. We, we, we're just going to write it without any specs, and then we'll iterate. So there's definitely misuses of Agile. I mean, the, the very common misuse of it is to, uh, is to just call it Agile, yeah. but do a waterfall. On it? Well, I'd say a more common is to be a cowboy and call it right, agile. Right, right, like, right, right. Like, hey, we don't know what we're doing, so we're just going to write a lot of stuff, ship it yeah. out, and then fix it. And right. Like, well, that's not actually yeah. agile. It's like we're, we're agile, but we actually aren't going to do any of the any of the follow any of the manifesto or kind of the best practices about how to do agile. But like, we're calling ourselves agile, so so leave us alone. Yeah. <laughs> so I was at this company. I say this. I'm thinking of a specific example where like. Um, it was working with another group, and I said, you know, can I see your your your, your specs? Can I see mm-hmm. your stories? And they're like, oh, we don't need them. We're agile. No. Oh. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we just write code. We're that agile. Mm-hmm. So the, the, this, um, I think you get this a lot with small teams and small teams where uh, where they don't necessarily have a vision, but where there where, where there once was a vision, and then and then the team grew, and the assumption was that that what had worked for two or three people would scale to five or six people. I think you can do cowboy well if you have two to three people who you know really understand each other and really get each other, and where, when you scale that, it it kind of goes awry. Kind of like a startup. I, I mean, startups are exactly the place that that, that this happens. People who. In particular, who don't believe in product management, you see this a lot. Who could not believe in product management? Ah, that was once me, believe it or not. No, Paul. Uh, yeah, no. No. I, 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 was, I was very much uh, a believer in in sort of developers making the the decisions themselves and developers, you know, talking to customers and validating things early and so basically taking the role of product manager and and you know spreading it across a. a development team. And the thing that you quickly learn with this is, is that developers, A, don't particularly want to do this, uh, and B, aren't particularly skilled at it. Or uh, I'm not going to say uh, not particularly skilled at it, but uh, don't necessarily have experience at it in, in the way that an experienced product manager does. Wow, this is fascinating. So so you were once not a not a fan of product management. What, what? Um, yeah, no, I, 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 did, I didn't believe it. Well, so I, I say I didn't believe it at all, but I, what I actually meant, what I actually mean is that I did quite a bit of it myself, and I considered that to be a core part of what engineering was. And to most other people, engineering was a smaller set of things that mostly focused around code. Interesting. So was it because you considered yourself a good product manager? No, I, 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 didn't, I didn't actually know that, that I had any sort of product skills at all. It's just that I spent a lot of time listening to customers and sort of condensing or, or, or coalescing their feedback into kind of a, you know, this is what the product should be. And so you considered, so you're like, everybody should be doing this at a company? Or I, 
The idea was, yeah, everyone should be doing this. And, and with a little more skill and particular practice in, in kind of validation, which was a thing that I wasn't particularly good at um, or, or didn't particularly have any formal skills at, let, let, let's say, I, I felt that it scaled very well. Like it, it would scale horizontally if just everyone you know, applied themselves to these, to these skills. So if every engineer goes and talks to every customer, everything will work out every Exa- time. Exactly, exactly. And, and obviously, I mean, the, the obvious places of, of scaling, you know, the, the, this falls apart. So, so it, it fell apart when, when people didn't have the same or d- didn't talk to the same customers, um, you know, got different feedback from, from different customers or applied their, own fe- uh, applied their own feelings from using the product more than, than talking to customers. Th- there's, there's a desire as an engineer to see a problem and to fix it. Oh, you, you, if it's, or duct tape it. Right. And, and, and this is how, um, you know, you just add another feature, you just add another flag. Uh, and without someone who, um, uh, to, to really kind of hold the whole vision in their head and set out, you know, values and an understanding of, of how the product needs to be built, uh, or, or, or what the product is, I think you, you end up just, you know, feature upon feature upon feature. It's it's funny because I had that exact same evolution, and I think that's why I was I was saying that because you're so pro product manager, which always surprises me from a developer. So what happened was we you know we were experiencing a lot of these problems, and um, and I spent some time with the um, with the VP of product at Intercom, uh, Paul Adams, and I think that that he is. Uh, I I don't know if he if he's actually like one of the best product people in the world. He just seemed to me to, he just <laughs> completely blew my mind, uh, and he seemed like really world class compared to many many other product managers I've talked to since. And he he, he talked about how, how they did things at Intercom. So they they, they you know have have overall uh, missions for you know how, how, how the product works. They have different names for this. So apologies if I'm butchering this. Uh, and they, they they set out you know a set of, a set of principles for what intercom is and you know one of the examples is intercom is multi-user or multiplayer or, or, or somewhere like that and you know, they, they said here's here's a couple of bullet points about what it means to be multiplayer and here's how it applies in, in in the product I think they had eight different ones of these and I'm sure that they evolved that over time but the idea of you know here's a bunch of things that you can read and you can understand and you can you can discuss or debate amongst yourselves you know Without necessarily re- reaching out to authority or reaching out to you know someone's vision or someone's or someone's opinion, uh, and and you can understand you know we need to do this because it is a multiplayer product and this doesn't work in a multiplayer sense, and that's that's an argument that that can win debates. Whereas the argument of well you know I really feel this should be like this oh, I really feel yeah. this should be like this you no one can get anywhere like this and it's just oh, a no, recipe for frustration. Yeah, it's. I mean, I feel this should look this color. I mean, right, right, everybody right. has a feeling. It should pop more. Well, of course it should pop more. Yeah. Every time. The um, this is probably not not a thing to to get into in this thing, but the uh, we can't get into it deeply enough here. But the 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 thing that we came up with ourselves was was um, sort of a conflict resolution framework called uh, problems solutions implementation. And the thing is that as engineers, we would always argue about the implementation. Oh, yeah. And then you get so deep and you lose track right. of what you're even trying to solve. Right. And instead, when we raised it up to, you know, here are the problems that we try to solve. Once you agree on the problems or the goals or whatever that you're trying to solve, it's very easy to say, you know, here's a solution that I'm trying to get to. And then you can all agree on the solution. And then the implementation just kind of naturally falls out of the solution in most cases. Well, and it's it's even more than that. You, I'm, I'm sure you have a persona on top of all of this. It, well, yes, yes. I mean, the... Problems, goals, personas, user stories—you know—it's all, it's all kind of principles, missions. Uh, well, because where, kind of where I've seen the biggest disagreements is where uh, there was not 
a unified view of who the, even the user was. Like, so I was working on a project once, and our architect thought that the user was an architect. Okay. Uh, everybody else thought our user was a content editor. Okay. And so he kept coming up with all this stuff that you could configure the heck out of, you know, mm-hmm. with a lot of code. And we're like, well, the content editor, like, they just want to sit and type. Right, right. And, and he's like, but they want to configure everything. I'm like, they mm-hmm. don't. They don't. Um, so that takes us a long, long way from where we started. But the, I, I think it's kind of fundamentally the, the, the same idea that you need to understand the, or that, that the, the, the structure and the way that that one builds software, I think, is, is the biggest thing that affects the, the, the velocity and the latency with which you can, with which you can ship. I, I'll quote, so I'll quote again, the Yammer uh, CTO, he said, the org you design is the software that you'll build. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of CircleCI, and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. 